Okay, gang, if you've got a Bible, grab it, keep it open in your lap. We are in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians is an amazing book because it's the only book that Paul ever wrote to the church where he wasn't motivated by some controversy, some issue, some situation that demanded that he sit down and write. If Paul could say, here's what I want the church to be and look like in all of its glory, here's what the picture of a gospel-centered church looks like, well then here it is in six chapters. And so if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 3 and we're going to stand together. And we're going to read it. So let's stand together as I read from us. Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 6. And this is the very word of God. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mercy and mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, that is already written in chapters 1 and 2. When you read this, you can perceive, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, take this word. It looks just like scribbles on a page for us in English, but it is, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the very word of God, and you do not intend for it to return void in our hearts. And so, Father, would you take us this morning... And would you lead us to the foot of the cross of Jesus? And would you make us more and more like your son? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to show you today that between these ideas of conviction and character lies something that we most need. Between the ideas of conviction and character, we're the city of character, right? Owasso is a city of character, isn't it? But you can have all the character you want and be hollow and be empty inside. I mean, if you've got a a besheveled, banged up house, you can go and you can put all the paint on it that you want and you can... Paste a smile on your face on Sunday and say, here I am, a man of character who's living an outstanding ethical life. And yet, you're completely hollow inside. And you're broken and you're empty. And you're, frankly, exhausted from trying to keep up appearances. Listen, you can paint a house and make it look beautiful. But what gives about the termites inside? I mean, you think the house looks great, but they're having like a party in the wall between the pantry and the living room. What we need is not character. What we need is actually something between conviction and character. In the book of Ephesians, Paul starts out this book in Ephesians chapter 1 talking about the convictions that we have. The things that have happened to us 
because God in his grace has come to us that we have been predestined, we have been set apart, we have been called, we have become the ecclesia, the called out ones. We have been chosen and set apart by Christ to be holy to the praise and glory of his namesake. That's in chapter 1. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he talks about character. So, so what, man? So what do we look like now, right? So do we, like, take people out and do we cuss out the refs at our kids' soccer games? No. This is what you ought to look like. Yeah, I heard an amen. Thank you very much, right? So this is what we ought to look like as the church. But then Paul does something very important in chapters 2 and chapters 3. And it is crucial for us to get in Owasso because we are desperate for it and we're blind to it. Between conviction and character is community. And Paul says that these two things, conviction, good understanding of theology, you've got all, you've got God in your boxes. And we want to be biblical about the way God describes himself in Scripture. And we want to be systematic and we want to be faithful to God's word. But that's not enough to be the church God wants us to be. Oh, you got character. You got the church that looks and feels and they've got the right, you know, grunge look on their signs. And they got the right feel and, you know, enough people in the church have got tattoos so that it doesn't feel weird. It feels normal, right? But Paul says what you really need to be the church is you need community. And this morning, I just want, frankly, to beg you. And plead with you and ache with you and yearn for you for us as a young church in this city to be the evidence of the power of God in Owasso through the way we are a community. You know, I've said this for a number of weeks that the evidence of God's power that He gives us in Ephesians chapter 1 is like a, a renewed heart, you know, like. Kids, you remember like when you accepted Jesus in your heart, right? When he opened your heart to believe, we should more rightly say, and you believed, you became a new person. Things began to be different. Like before you like slapped your brother across the head, you actually thought about it maybe a little bit more than you used to, right? We were, we were new. But that's not just the way God demonstrates the power of his glory. He demonstrates it also Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, through the presence of a gospel thriving community. And in Owasso, I dare say that the way that God demonstrates his power in this city, probably best of all, is through community. Because you don't see it, do you? Paul tries to pray for the people of Ephesus. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, and he starts to begin to pray. If you look back in verse 14, he says again, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He's going into his prayer, and something stops him that is just nagging him, that he's got to make crystal clear. And it's that you've got to understand the relationship that you've been brought into, no matter where you are, if you're a homeschooler or a public schooler, where you're a Democrat, <gasps> or you're a Republican. The gospel unites us in Christ so that the cross levels the playing field, so that your chief identity is not as a Sooner or a cowboy, or heaven forbid, an Aggie, but your identity is in Jesus. And when that's the case, it doesn't matter 
It really doesn't matter if people begin to come to our church who don't look and act the same way we do. In fact, that's who we want here. This week I got an email from one of you. Now, you know who you are, so you can relax. And this is what they said. You can pray that we have patience in waiting, waiting for something that they've been longing for for some time that we've been praying about together. We've been talking about sharing it with our community group and plan to do so in the future. And then then they said this, the only way to grow as a family of believers, you must share things that make you feel vulnerable. There it is. And any of us could have just written that email. In fact, that might be something you could say right now about something you're waiting in patience for. The problem is we understand this cognitively and intellectually. For most of us, it's not doctrine that's the problem. It's getting it that long distance from the head to the heart. It's helping the penny to drop. So that what we say we believe in our heart, we actually experience in our relationships. And man, then it gets messy. Okay, yeah, 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 pastor, I know that. Like, get onto the deep stuff. Like, start, you know, give me some Greek and let's get deeper in here. Listen. Getting into Greek, which I love, and as you know, often say it in sermons. Getting into the deep stuff of Scripture, you know what that means? It means getting into the lives of other people. That's how you experience the depth of the gospel in your life. Why are so many of your friendships languishing like a flag, limp, without any wind? Why are some of your marriages so um, complicated after years of not communicating very well? Might it be that you're so cocksure you know about the gospel that you've actually missed it? Paul says in verse 4, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. There it is. Here's Paul, born in a time in history where lions were going extinct in Europe, and the Han Dynasty was just beginning there rain in China, a time when the waterways and byways, the trade routes, began to cover the whole known world, that the Lord at the appointed time has one named Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us out from under the law so that we might have joy and fellowship with God, our Creator. And here's Paul, given an insight into the mystery that has been hidden. What is that mystery? Now, in Scripture, the mystery is used a number of times. Often it's used the mystery of Jesus being seen in the shadows throughout the Old Testament, but being seen in the substance of Jesus in history. That's one way that Paul uses mystery in other books. But here, the mystery is about the mystery of community. And the principle that he gives us is true community is a mystery that has now been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. True community is a mystery that has now been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And all of us love mysteries, don't we? Like, who here has ever watched CSI? Or Lost? 
Or, you know, we love, we love, you know, these movies that just captivate us because they're built on mystery. I mean, most movies on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night are built off, they play the plot development of mystery up so much that you're just left hanging. Like 24, like almost destroyed my marriage because we had to watch it like again and we could not go to sleep. It's the same way with movies now. It's like, you know, you think about, you know, The Bachelor. It's like, oh my gosh, who's he going to choose? Who's he going to Oh, she is a witch. He can't choose her. Like, she's evil. He can't choose her. And, oh, I love her. We just dumped her. So it's, we get sucked into the mystery. Or House, right? I mean, why is Gregory House so complicated? He's jacked up on painkillers, but he solves these incredible mysteries of medical um, anomalies. We love mystery, but the greatest mystery in our hearts, in Owasso, is why is it so hard to build community in this town? You know the answer? It's not because we don't have more sidewalks, although that would be nice. It's not because we don't have a trail like they have at Skytook that goes all the way down to Riverside, although that would be nice. It's not because we don't have um, smaller plots, lots, so we can see our neighbors more often. That'd be nice. You know what the scripture actually says? Is that our hearts are by nature radically self-focused and self-centered. And I just want, I, the next 10 minutes are going to be a little hard on you, and I do it because I love you. But I just want to lay the Bible open as a diagnostic of your hearts. And I just want to show you what Scripture says about your heart. And then out from that, see how it is that we actually move toward community together. In the very beginning, God gave us a perfect environment. We were in fellowship with God. We were in fellowship with one another. God gave Adam a job to cultivate the fields. He gave Adam a wife. I mean, there she is. She was his. There he is. He was hers. It was a perfect relationship. Vertically, horizontally, it was a perfect relationship with the world. And yet God gave Adam one command. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. And yet Adam dropped the ball. Husbands, he didn't want to rock the boat at home. He didn't want to face the wrath of his wife. And so he didn't lead her spiritually. And she ate the fruit. And then years later, with the coming of the Enlightenment in the Western world, we think, oh yeah, you know what? If we can just get past all this doctrine and just get to the data, like if we can just figure out why it is that we are so screwed up, then we'll be able to solve the problem. If we can just like get through the human genome and if we can just figure out the right system of government and get it perfect, then we'll figure it out. So it doesn't matter what your level of education is. Friends, it doesn't matter under what system of government we're in. It doesn't matter how widely you distribute the wealth or how narrowly you keep it in the system of capitalism. Do you know one thing that has never changed amidst all of our creativity in developing civil society? Nobody solved greed or malice or hate or murder or envy. And they all still exist. 
But, but if we can just listen to NPR and we can just get the facts and we can just line ourselves up, then, then we'll be able to have the life God intends. No, you won't. Oppression and injustice still exist. And they won't just melt away. Do you know what we've been able to figure out in the years that we've been in existence? Here's what we've been able to figure out. How to kill people faster and cleaner. Oh, we thought we'd actually improve civilization, but the 20th century was the deadliest century in the history of mankind. That's progress. So it's no wonder why we come here on Sunday morning and we open up God's Word, because frankly, nothing else cuts it. And we open up God's Word because we believe it is the authoritative diagnostic tool, not only of our hearts, but of what's gone so wrong with the world. And you see everything through that lens. Are you with me? So what does it say about our hearts? Like we can't go to a doctor and just say, you know, I really don't know. Let me just do surgery. (laughs) Like you'd be in big trouble. So we go to God's word and we let it accurately diagnose. And here's what it says. In Psalm 14, chapter 2. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. John, I think there's a slide for us to follow along. To see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no, no one who does good. No. In case you missed the point, not even one, the psalmist says. Listen, we can all find somebody who we're better than, right? I mean, we can... We can pull somebody who is like clinically diagnosed as a moron and set them beside us and say, look, we're smarter than they are. We can always find somebody against whom we can feel better or more superior. In fact, unless they're in prison, it's probably pretty easy to do. But you know what's really hard for us? It's hard for us to not judge other people, to look down our nose at them and to say, you know what, you're really not that great, but I am because of these reasons. Look, where, look what I've done. Look who I am. Look, you're just illustrating the point. I mean, we watch TV shows where the whole show is about a judge who is judging people, like Judge Judy. Anybody ever watch that? Okay, yeah, yeah, some guilty hands. All right, yeah, me too. Thank you. And we like that show because there's something about us that loves the verdict. To come down, to hammer those suckers. And we tend to do that in our hearts all the time. Or Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, that I am clean from my sin? That that's a statement, that's not a question. No one can say that. Or Ephesians chapter 2. Paul just lays it out there. We're going to look at chapter 2 in the fall. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Listen, if that verse is true and we believe that it is, if that's true of my heart and of your heart, then there is no such thing as an arrogant Christian. You have no room to boast. What do you have to offer? God, 
does not hire you based upon your resume. In fact, if it weren't for the son stepping in, you would be excused and condemned to wrath. But this is all we have to offer. And so why are we arrogant? And why even as Reformed folk at a new church plant, do we think that we've got it all figured out? Friends, please don't let arrogance get in the way as a cloud gets in the way of the sun from letting you feel the warmth of your Father's love for you. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and, the, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Well, some of you say, you know, thanks, Blake. You, you know, I've been coming for a while, or I'm new here today, and you have no idea what I've been through. You know, you have no idea what I've smoked, what I've shot up, what I've done to this person. You have no idea about my life. And that might be true. I do know a lot of your stories, though. And you know my story. And I may not know your whole story. But you know what? Your environment that you keep blaming your sin on is not the cause of your sin. It's the fertilizer for it. Your environment is not the cause of your sin. It's the fertilizer for sin. So, but dude, you don't know about my dad. You don't know about my mother. You know, I may not. But your environment, brother, sister, is not the cause of your sin. It is the fertilizer for it. You stand on your own two feet before King Jesus and you offer him your filthy rags. But man, you don't understand about where we live in this state. You know, that is true. Oklahoma, right, was a, was a state that was founded because people love to be alone. Do you know that? Like they got out of the cities in the east, the east, and they ran to the west in order to find land. I mean, the state of Oklahoma is founded upon people who wanted more land. They were greedy to be isolated. And so they left the cities and they ran to Oklahoma. And then when that wasn't enough, you know, then we took the Native Americans and we put them in a place where they could be separate from their people and we gave them a county called Osage. Listen, our whole state is built on this idea of rugged individualism. It is in the water we drink, the air we breathe, and we become blind to it that by nature we tend to recoil into ourselves and not be vulnerable to reach out to be the church with one another. And we moved to Owasso from Tulsa. And this isn't a bad thing, by the way, at all. We moved to Owasso to have more space. And that is a wonderful thing, but you must recognize that it comes with liabilities. Spiritual, concrete liabilities that you may not have the same opportunities to interact with people from Germany and Uzbekistan and Thailand like Andrew and Becky. You may not have the same ability to interact with people from the world and we all begin to look alike, speak alike, say the same things alike, dress alike. And that is actually a liability that you have to be careful about. And you've got to know it. And you've got to cultivate relationships very intentionally in this place. There was, um, several years ago, there was uh, a guy named... 
uh, Ibrahim Navawi. He was a well-known Iranian journalist who spoke about his time as a, um, uh, in prison. He, he was a political prisoner. And this is what he said about his time in prison after he had been released. He said, I was held captive by a weapon sharper than a knife, louder than a gun, by something without a face and without a voice. Since my release, I have not been able to sleep without sleeping pills. It's awful. The loneliness never, never leaves you long after, you, after you've been freed. Every door that is closed brings you back to that dungeon. They get what they want without even having to hit you. They know enough about you to control the information they, get, they give you. They make you believe that the president has resigned, that they have your wife, that someone you trust has told them lies about you, and you begin to break. And once you break, they have control, and then you begin to confess. Abraham Navawi is describing what um, the CIA certainly and other people know as white torture. This was not done in America. This was done overseas by another government, not our own. This is actually illegal for our government to do. But white torture brings out the worst kind of suffering imaginable to human beings. His cell had no windows. The walls and his clothes were white. His meals consisted on white rice on a white plate. To use the toilet, he had to put a white piece of paper under the door. He was forbidden to speak, and the guards reportedly wore shoes that muffled sound. This description of treatment is the description of extreme isolation. It is inhuman, it is primitive, and it is cruel. And we are two years into our church plant. I've been here 20 months. And as I listen to your struggles, and as I pray for you as your pastor... One of the most frequent things I hear in our church and around town is that we're lonely. And there is in Owasso a kind of white torture that has been given a social acceptance that is demonic. This kind of isolation is okay. That's the lie they want you to believe. It is not. And some of you feel very alone. And you don't know what to do about it. Story's too long to tell. And frankly, you're not real sure if you want to go back into that prison cell again. And so you know what you do? You know what I do? You buy a new phone. And you go get a new pair of pants. And you go to Utica Square and you shop. Or you go get a new car. And you amuse yourself to death. You cover it up for 60 years. And at those moments when you feel uncomfortable, it all comes back down to the moment that you feel lonely. And you're terrified. Listen. Satan does not have the authority to go at you with white torture. He is much more subtle. He gets you into isolation by drowning out the noise. And deep in our hearts, we do not experience the joy that the gospel brings us. 
because we have a hard time seeing ourselves in the eyes of our Savior who loves us. The whole story of the Bible is that while Adam and Eve sinned against God and took the whole house of cards down with us, God did not leave us on our own. And the beauty of the incarnation is not only that God understands what it's like to be isolated, but that he gave us Jesus, who himself was isolated on the cross, so that we might come out of our isolation into community through the life, death, resurrection, and glory of Christ. And begin to experience the joy and the freedom that comes in knowing that when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you as a jacked up, messed up human being, although you and I are. He sees you as a beloved daughter of the King who wants you to get past your self-pity. And they hear that Jesus loves you. And he loves you so much that he came to die for you. Man, he wants you to get past your self-absorption. And he wants you to hear that Christ is enough for you. And that all of your struggles for success and your good, it's a good thing to want to provide for your family. These things begin to own you and they blind you to your greatest needs. And your greatest needs are to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and to experience the joy of that relationship. How? In community. Paul says that the mystery of the revelation that was given to him is revelation because we don't get it. It's got to be brought to us. It's got to be revealed. Is that Jew and Gentile, though they hated each other, in Christ to become one new society, one new humanity in him. And what I'm about to say is I think the reason why so many of us have a hard time experiencing it, and here it is. We do not understand forgiveness. Wait a minute, Pastor, you have no idea what I put up with. You have no idea what it's like to live with this or that person. You have no idea what I've been through. You know, if Christ, you have no idea, so I can't forgive him. It's impossible. If Christ Jesus came and we believe he did, then you know what? You can. But you don't even know what you're talking about. You're a 35-year-old kid. You have no idea. Live a few more years, Pastor, and you'll know. Listen, I don't know some of your stories. That's true. I don't know them. I don't know what you've done. For most of you, I do. But whatever lies in your past, however jacked up your relationships are, however trouble, in trouble your marriage is, it is sophomore B-team stuff compared to what God has forgiven you. Like, Anybody here ever had an affair on their spouse and then killed their spouse? Anybody ever had? Anybody here? Yeah, anybody here? It's okay. It's okay to not be okay in this church. I mean, anybody ever, just to be clear, anybody ever had an affair on their spouse and then cut the spouse's spouse down and other, in, a, in order to preserve their affair. Have you ever done that? Oh, okay. Well, David did. And God said he was a man after his own heart. 
Anybody ever firebombed a church? Anybody ever, you know, we're watching Arrested Development on the weekends, and, you know, this dude that's described in Scripture is like axing Christians. Anybody ever killed a Christian going to church? Anybody ever here? Anybody? Well, the Apostle Paul did. And he describes himself in verse 1 as a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of us, the ethne, the Gentiles. God used a Christian killer. He set up shop to destroy the Christian community. And he used Paul to describe what Christian community should be like. And I, I, I was getting ready for this morning in my office. And I got to this point and I just wept. I just wept like a baby because God has forgiven a Christian killer. And yet there are things in my heart that I have struggled to forgive people over the past. And it's hurtful. And brothers, I know what you've been through. But it is sophomore B-team stuff because of what Christ has forgiven you. The only way you can forgive is if you understand how much you've been forgiven. I'm not saying that you don't have a past, but what I am saying is that that past is not more powerful than the fact, the truth, the reality that God wants to begin to heal you, not of the consequences of the past. He can't erase those. But of you being imprisoned by your past and move you toward a greater delight in community than lugging your baggage around wherever you go. If forgiveness is here for us to receive, then forgiveness is here for us to give. If forgiveness in the gospel is for us to receive, then it's here for us to give. And I know forgiveness is difficult. And I know many of us have forgiven people and then like a year later, man, we're thinking about this person and we're just dreaming of them like melting in the hot lava. And like, man, maybe I really haven't forgiven. Forgiveness doesn't mean forget. Like, we're not telling you to forget what's happened. Right? Jesus never forgot what happened. But what forgiveness is, is absorbing the weight, the debt of that sin. Jesus didn't forget your sin. He absorbed it. And until you can understand how much Jesus has absorbed of your barbs and the debt of your sin against him, brothers, you will never, sisters, you will never be able to forgive other people. And you will exist in a kind of white torture of bitterness your whole life. And some of us, (laughs) some of us think that, you know, if I can just like, if I can just like make life miserable for this person, then I'll get back at him. If I can, if I can just like, I don't want to let them go free. I don't want to forgive them because then they'll be free. And then it's not fair because I have to bear the debt that, listen. If you refuse to forgive them, you're just going to become more enslaved. You've got to let that go. And the only way you can do that is not with good character. And it's not actually with good thinking or doctrine, although that's important. It's by believing that what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ was for you.
in that through the cross, Jesus actually brings you in as a friend. He makes you an heir. He makes you in verse 6, as it says, of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the good news, the gospel. When you can say you've been forgiven and that Christ has absorbed your sin, then and only then can you begin to extend forgiveness to other people. Otherwise, it's just like painting the house with the termites inside. And not letting go of an offense. Not letting go of an offense. You think is somehow maturing that relationship, but you know what? It is imprisoning you to a kind of white torture. And it's inhumane and it's cruel. And we believe that vengeance is the Lord. And we believe in the judgment of God. And you know why that is good news? Because you don't have to seek judgment or vengeance upon those who harm you. And some of us in this room have been harmed. There's been sexual abuse in this very room. There's been brutal emotional abuse in this room. And the only way you can actually forgive your perpetrator, the only way that you're going to be able to forgive them, is by recognizing how much Christ has forgiven you. And it doesn't mean that that relationship's restored. It's okay if that relationship, there are people in my life that, you know, we're just not going to be cool, friend. And it's not going to be, hey, bro, we ain't going to be bros anymore. I mean, there's stuff that's happened that's, that's been damaging. And that doesn't mean that your marriage, just, you don't have to, you know, sometimes some marriages are in real bad trouble. That doesn't mean that things are going to be back to normal, whatever normal means. But it does mean that forgiveness has been granted because if you can't get there, you will never experience the joy and you'll be locked up in a kind of white torture like Abraham Navabi was. Listen, there is no more judgment for us because on the cross of Christ, Jesus absorbed our sin. And we then can extend community, extend forgiveness to other people and begin to walk with them with the joy that God intends for us to experience. We have the opportunity to display for Owasso and Tulsa what it means to be God's countercultural community in Christ. But between conviction and character is something crucial for us in Oklahoma to get for our discipleship. Between conviction and character is something that we have not historically valued in the city. It is something that you cannot program, but you have to prioritize it, value it. You have to model it. You have to embrace it. You have to let it shape you. You have to let it set you free. It is, between conviction and character, is the evidence of God's power in our city. It is the experience of his riches. It is the thing that we most need for planting a new church in this town. And Paul pleads it for you, and so do I. Do you yearn for it? Do you yearn to be known by your brothers and sisters, by friends who really know you so that you don't have to quit putting on appearances? It's possible through the gospel. On the Discovery Channel this week, there was a show about Vietnam, and there was an episode in Vietnam where there was a, a Navy SEAL that went in to rescue a prisoner. And he went into this prison that they had fought through it. This was looking back several years ago, or 30 years ago, during Vietnam. And he went into this cage, this bamboo cage in the ground. And this, this Navy SEAL went down and pulled this prisoner out who was sitting in the corner, huddled in a corner, 
naked and tremoring. And he got, and this guy freaked out, and he ran over into the corner, and he huddled against the bamboo shoots. And this Navy SEAL said to him, hey, I'm an American. We're here to set you free. And the guy had been through so much torture that there was no, he did not trust anybody. They had lied to him about what happened to America. He had no idea what to believe. And so the soldier took off his helmet, and he let his blonde hair down, And he walked over to the guy and he said, look at my hair. It's not black. It's blonde. I'm an American. And in just a minute, I'm going to stand up. And I hope you do too. And we're going to walk out of here together. Jesus is holding his hand out to you and saying, I want you, I wish that you would stand up with me. I wish that you would walk with me into community, even though it's scary. And you know how he gives us opportunities to do that? He has things like what's going to happen at 1 o'clock at Kathy Sheffield's house. He has parties where we pray for women. And I hope that every woman in this church goes to Kathy Sheffield's house. That you figure out with your husband after I close how to take care of the kids, what to do about lunch, and you get there. I hope they call the cops because Coffee Creek is packed with cars, because everybody is batting down her door trying to get in to be together to pray. We have community groups that are set up to give us surface area with each other. We do this because we have to prioritize community or we won't do it. We just have like these romance affairs with our our flat screen TVs. And listen, we're all people of means and it's very easy to amuse ourselves. You've got to connect. You've got to be intentional about it. It may not make sense why you're going, but you've got to go. And you've got to let your legs lead your heart sometimes and get there and try it and become community and share vulnerable things and see how you're going to get hurt. Yes. Oh, but the joy of letting people know who you are is so beautiful. This summer, every Friday night, have a barbecue at your house and invite your neighbors to come over and watch it grow. This summer, go do yard work down the street like the D's did this week and mow the lawn that's vacant and just watch the neighbors come out and meet them, get to know them. This summer, go to the 4th of July party. Go to the Ford's party at the, on the 4th and be the church together. There is um, this fall also a conference in, in Dallas, in Frisco, called the Christian Counseling Education Foundation Conference. It's a very, very good conference that's in Dallas, not in Philadelphia. The CCEF Conference on Biblical Counseling. And you know what the title is? Not Alone. And it's October 11th through 13th. You'll find out more information about that on the city. Avail yourself to that because our struggle with isolation goes deep and we've got to let the gospel bring us out of it. And the only way you're going to do that is not by better character. It's not by painting the fence. It's by letting Jesus Christ, the one who became isolated himself on that cross for you to bring you in community. It's by seeing how beautiful and believable he is that you can begin to make progress and forgive. Let's pray together. Father, community is a hard thing for me. And I am not always good at it. 
But I also know that that's no excuse. Lord, some of us need community so bad that we don't understand the desperation of our loneliness. And I pray that you'll begin to foster good friendships in our church over the summer. And that you begin to help us be a church where it's okay not to be okay. Because Jesus is the only thing okay in this room right now. And he sings over us that you are my beloved child. And that I extend to you the offer of forgiveness if you'll just believe it. So, Father, would you help us as Christians to believe the gospel we say we profess? And would you help us as unbelievers to embrace the gospel for the first time and respond to the work you, O Holy Spirit, are doing in our hearts? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.